Welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. Regardless of which historical period you place it in, the repercussions of modernity, the myriad transformations to society, capital, and technology entail the fundamental reshaping of the world and the minds of those living through it. While this latter aspect is often understood purely in terms of the many artistic movements catalyzed by the advent of modernity, the changes it wrought to cognition go far deeper. In his cover story for the December issue, Will Self argues that the potential to experience trauma is a strictly modern phenomenon and that it's not a timeless constant of the human psyche. Further, Self decries the rampant overuse and misapplication of the word, whether by literary critics reading Shakespeare or by TikTok's dancing therapists. I spoke with Self about his essay, The Perils of Reassessing the Historical Record Through the Lens of Trauma, and the traumagenetic environment in which we live. You know, reading this, I was reminded of the current sort of uproar about Havana syndrome and and the way in which, you know, national security reporters approach it from their point of view, where it's like, well, this is a threat to the United States. Whereas numerous scientists have argued that the reported symptoms of Havana syndrome, then they agree that they are bad and disruptive are the result of a stressful job and not microwave attacks. So, you know, obviously this is a pervasive problem that people are approaching certain events from their own kind of biases or trying to use science without actually using science. Just as, you know, these literary critics are trying to apply trauma to works of literature where it's not appropriate. Well, I don't, I don't think you're cutting quite to the nub of this, actually. The nub of it is that, that I don't believe that the symptoms associated with PTSD are what's called an anthropological constant. I, I, I don't believe that they exist in all societies and at all times in the same way. And yes, I mean, bringing up the issue of Havana syndrome, yeah, that seems like another kind of set of symptoms that people are wanting to yoke up to a pathology. That's true. And a defined pathology. And I, I would also argue that that there is a larger argument to, to be made here about the relationship between what we think of as pathologies in the contemporary world, uh, what we think of as symptoms, and what we think of as their etiology, their cause. And, and I think you can see it in all sorts of areas of what we broadly, and again, you know, the very distinction between mental and physical illness, I would argue, draws out the underlying philosophic problem we in the West have. Because, of course, you know, in Eastern medicine, there's no distinction between the body and the mind at all. So, you know, when that creeps in, I think that creates problems in terms of diagnosis and understanding about illness and disease. And it can relate to phenomena as diverse as schizophrenia, autism, and in this case, PTSD. But in the particular case of my argument, I I think that the background traumatogenic character of our contemporary lives, which is something that, you know, the existence or or the propagation of the idea of Havana syndrome would tend to to draw to our attention is something that has precipitated this particular view together with a particular ideological perspective. And I would argue that's the perspective of contemporary and confused liberalism itself that has made it so difficult for us to believe that the human psyche may change considerably from place to place and time to time. And that the kind of things that we're beset by now may not have beset people in different times and in, in different places. Right. I mean, perhaps we could start with the definition of trauma that's in the DSM-5. Mm. And the problems with that definition and the DSM itself. Well, again, yes, you're quite right there. There is a problem with, with the DSM itself. Uh, and, and, and interestingly, and, and it won't surprise you or, or listeners to the Harper's podcast, that I'm actually working on a piece on the history of the DSM itself at the moment. There's a problem with the way that the DSM is compiled. I mean, it, it, it is not done 
I think we we have this idea about hard science, particularly in relation to medicine. And because medicine, in some senses, particularly heroic medicine, seems like the kind of sharp end of, you know, science does amazing things. You know, look at it. This 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 woman was going to die. They gave her a new heart. They cured her cancer. Look at her. She's walking around. I mean, you know, over and above things like kind of Elon Musk's SpaceX or huge civil engineering projects or, you know, things like finding effective vaccines against COVID-19 as quickly as we did suggests a kind of Promethean quality, particularly to our medical technology. DSM seems to be, by its very fact, fitting into that kind of hard medical science situation. Yet when you drill down into DSM, even before I get to how they define post-traumatic stress disorder, when you look at DSM, it's compiled by committee. It's compiled by multiple choice. It's compiled by a series of equivocations between views that are of qualitative decisions, not quantitative decisions. And and the PTSD definition fits into that. You only have to look at it in context to see it's full. You know, and I, I speaking to Harper's readers, I, I think, you know, I'm speaking to people who who have a, a sense of language as nuance. That's why they read our magazine. <laughs> it, it, this is as much about literary criticism and the literary criticism we all need to indulge in when we look at any kind of text. Uh, and the definition of PTSD in DSM-5 remains loaded with qualitative language rather than quantitative language. Its definitions are open-ended, if not obscure. Mm-hmm. And... Part of your thesis is that trauma is really an effect of a certain sort of technologized environment. And most of the examples you focus on, like railway spine, World War I, social media, fit into that narrative neatly. But many people hearing the word trauma might first think of like domestic or personal shocks that don't have any obvious connection to technology. So like being abused by one's parents or sexual violence. And it seems harder to imagine that those sorts of things didn't happen before the industrial revolution or that when they did, they wouldn't have caused lasting psychological effects independent of the way they were labeled or or theorized at that time. So I wonder if talking about how those kinds of so-called trauma fit into your argument could help clarify what you are and aren't saying? Yeah, I mean, two points there. For a start, yeah, I mean, back to DSM-5. It characterizes the, the effects of trauma on the memory as, and I quote, recurrent, involuntary, and intrusive, distressing memories of the traumatic events. Well, even that is evaluative language. What classes mm. exactly is recurrent? What classes is involuntary when we're coming to psychic phenomena? What classes is intrusive? But step back from that sentence. Uh, and you know what I'd say is a recurrent, involuntary, and intrusive, distressing memory of a traumatic event. Most uh, Hollywood and, and stream TV shows at the moment seem to focus on that kind of content almost exclusively. We, we seem to live in a mediatized world that, that takes as its paradigm the definition of PTSD in DSM-5. So, yeah, you're quite right, and you put it well. I think there is an equivalence between you know, these different kinds of technologies and, and, and the heuristic, the interpretive device I bring in the essay to bear on this is this idea of the technological bubble. The idea that we, we become accustomed to living within the purlieu of a certain kind of technology. The most obvious example, and you mentioned railway spine, which is where there, there's first an attempt to connect the physical and, and the psychic. People are in railway crashes, and then they have no apparent physical trauma, but they then have terrible psychological and psychic traumatic effects, perhaps hours or days later. And where the, the idea of the technological bubble comes in is really quite simple. You're in the train, you're reading your newspaper, or you're playing Candy Crush on your phone, you've forgotten you're in a train. 
You're completely enclosed in the train's technological bubble. You have completely suspended disbelief, you know, as if, as if uh, you know, the vehicle was some kind of metaphor, uh, which, you know, interestingly, in, in Athens, the public transport system is indeed called a metaphori. <laughs> You're inside this kind of, this metaphor, and, and it collapses. It breaks down, and and there's the trauma in one. It's precisely because you were no longer in your passive mental state, factoring in the possibility of an accident, that it affects you as as so traumatic. Okay, I totally understand that people listening are going to think, excuse me, being sexually molested, being raped, uh, being subjected to sexual violence in, in in warfare, even being subjected to certain kinds of warfare. Clearly, these are events that, you know, it's not, we don't have to equivocate over the language here. That's got to be traumatic, right? Yes, of course, it's got to be traumatic, but that's using the word as an open-ended category. Is it traumatic in the sense that people want PTSD to be what we call in medicine a hard diagnosis, one you can make confidently, and one which gives you the following, etiology, causes, progress of the disease and outcome. And that's where I think things start getting a bit confusing. But here's the other thing I'll bring in. And and if I, you know, if I could have had a little more space, I was given quite a lot, I concede, but I would have (laughs) liked still more in Harper's. This is specifically, you know, where I think doubt is going to creep in and people are going to think, hmm, hang on a minute. Yeah, being raped as traumatic is an anthropological constant. You know, being raped in ancient Sumer must have been just as bad as being. Well, I'm sorry. Yeah, I really am going to have to challenge that idea in quite that way. And, and, and it's almost in a throwaway line what I bring to try and convince my readers. What it is, is I think that, that we came to believe that the family the nuclear family, and it starts, I believe, at around the same time that the railway service starts to get regular, we started to believe that the family was necessarily a kind of well-upholstered, smooth-running vehicle in its own right, a vehicle of safety, primarily. The Victorian family constructs itself as an institution of safety in that way. And when it comes by sociologists to be called the nuclear family in the 20th century, the underlying rhetorical form of that safety even becomes clearer. Of course, I think it was traumatic for people to be sexually abused by their parents at any time. But I'm afraid to say, I suspect in earlier eras, it wasn't quite as a surprise as it was once the ideology of the idea of the safe family environment had come into being. And as a supplementary to that, what I would say is that the transition, always more exaggerated by critics of Freud than I think is warranted, between Freud's early view that his hysterical and largely female patients actually had been sexually abused, to his later view that they had fantasized that they were sexually abused in order to cope with the trauma of recognizing their underlying sexual feelings as children is more apparent than real. Mm. I mean, the other obvious sort of example of what could be understood as trauma is the institution of slavery. And there's been a lot of research into epigenetics and inherited trauma you know, specifically in relation to descendants of slavery. So is it simply that the type of emotional and physical toll of something like slavery is fundamentally different from our modern conception of trauma? And we can't comprehend the differences between the two because we we can't go back in time and sort of do those diagnostics. We can just, again, approximate and do a lot of heavy lifting with words like appear to. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a moral point, I think. You know, as I, as I understand it, the average African-American household has, has an income a 14th of that of the average white household as a total household wealth. There's enough there to explain the traumas that African-American people suffer in the contemporary era without needing to reach for inherited trauma, which is not to say that I don't think it's possible that trauma can carry down the generations. You know, as as somebody, of of course, of Jewish heritage myself, uh, I'm well aware 
of the phenomenon and the extent to which the Holocaust, for example, has induced traumatogenic effects in subsequent generations of Jews. I'm, I'm well, well aware of that. So I'm not trying to discount that idea in any way. But nonetheless, what I'm saying is this urge to regard the past as some sort of version of the present is highly mistaken when it comes to psychology. It doesn't really catch the nuance. Again, another kind of, I'm not sure whether it's still in the essay because, there were, you know, as I'm sure listeners will be familiar, the editing process is quite lengthy for a long essay like this. But one of the central planks of my argument, you know, I, I'm appealing to literary people here, is Shakespeare. If you take the total body of Shakespeare's oeuvre, all of human life is there. And, and there are no characters saying, oh, I can't go on with life anymore. There's so much sexual violence in Elizabethan England. I can't cope with, with life in Elizabethan England because, you know, I've got kidney disease and there's, nobody's invented a dialysis machine. What I was trying to do with this essay was draw the contemporary liberal conscience and consciousness's attention to the way we attempt to colonize the past with our own ideas. And that really, in a sense, you know, it, it, it's almost like I feel biblical, you know, let, let the dead take care of the dead. You know, mm. we need to direct our concerns with how we're going to deal with what I genuinely believe to be a almost globally traumatogenic environment now. Yeah, I mean, it is an interesting proposition that because when you, as trauma sort of enters into you, the discourse and things like literary criticism and just sort of culture in general, this understanding of it following, I feel like especially following the second Iraq war, the war in Afghanistan, it does beg the question because if we understand trauma as it is now, the entire world, pretty much everyone leading up to this point in history has been traumatized. You know, the idea that someone who was like a levy in 13th century England, went to the battlefield, had terrible hand-to-hand -hand combat, you know, lost a limb, saw people die in horrible ways, and then would have to come back and try to reassemble their life. And that that soldier's wife would have had like 10 children and maybe like two of them would have lived to adulthood, that the majority of people have been traumatized. So, so understanding the world like that it, it begs this question, what benefit does it give us? Does it allow sort of a different, deeper understanding of how we got here? Or is it perhaps, as you say, a little bit too, you know, retrofitting the past? Because every, I mean, every generation has this tendency to see the past through the lens of what is what is contemporary to them? Well, yeah, with I think you've made my argument for me and done it very eloquently. That's exactly right. But where we differ, where the post-Enlightenment, particularly the post-Industrial Revolution societies of the West, differ from almost all previous societies and cultures, and this was an anthropological constant, is that the societies of the past didn't have an idea of linear progress stretching into the future. They often viewed history as cyclical, and, and often they viewed themselves as not only, uh, you know, technologically, but also morally less than their predecessors. So I would argue that this kind of view where we colonize the past and say everybody was traumatized in the past, everybody was in pain, everybody had suffered sexual violence, nobody had any good sex. How could they in these societies in which Women were so subjugated. Women had no reproductive rights. Everything must have just been totally horrible. Well, I think that's in order to gratify ourselves in the sense that we are progressing because, frankly, all the evidence is to the contrary. So, you know, this seems to me like extreme special pleading. And in fact, we've got things terribly the wrong way around. We want to diss the past because we're in bad faith about our own present. I, I really believe that's the case. But to push the ar argument further in a way, why is it that 
that people would want trauma to be constant. That's the thing we have to ask ourselves. And why would people want to deny the idea that trauma was inherently linked to modern social and technological formations that actually act in lockstep? I mean, why do we have modern nuclear families in which we're left to our own devices, often isolated from other people, often at the times when we're most vulnerable to abusive activities of all kinds. You know, why is it that we're like that? Why is our, why are our societies so disconnected and anomic? Does social media play a part in that? You can bet your life it does. Absolutely. Yeah, and I, th- you know, when you're when you're discussing the advent of the train, you have the switch from sort of you know experiential time to clock time, and that's a key facet of modernity is that switch, and so there's a collective consciousness and experience of temporality that didn't exist prior to that. So could you discuss the psychic implications of that switch, specifically regards into things like memory? I mean, I, I, I feel obligated to ask this because temporality has been such a recurrent theme in your fiction. Yes. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's quite right. I mean, in a sense, this essay relates to the trilogy of novels I wrote throughout the last decade or so. So you're quite right. I've been preoccupied for a long time now with the impact of technology. And and yeah, you know, you think of the form of clock time. I mean, again, another literary example, I'm not sure, made it into the final essay. You know, I would say that Gregor Samsa in, in, in Kafka's Metamorphosis is traumatized. <laughs> and he's traumatized because he didn't, he slept through the alarm. The form his trauma takes is is to see himself as cast out from society. He becomes useless in the context of the culture he's embedded in, which is a hardline capitalist culture of productiveness and of everybody being linked to clock time. I mean, if you can recall the novella, he was meant to be at the station at like 5 a.m. You know, he's, he's a traveling salesman. And, you know, if you take the philosopher Henri Bergson's distinction between the experience of duration, durée, and the experience of clock time, then that gives it you in a moment. When we're subjectively ourselves, temporality becomes quite hazy and difficult. It's not really pegged to anything. You know, you have somebody like the marvelous character of Dunbar in Joseph Heller's Catch-22, who realizes that every hour he lives through bored is so much longer than when he's excited. So he deliberately cultivates boredom in order to increase his his lifespan. And of course, he's in a traumatogenic environment. He's, uh, you know, part of the U.S. Air Force's bombing campaign at the end of the Second World War. You know, so he's facing death every day. So, you know, I think those three examples give you this savage, you know, kind of declivity between social forms and cultural forms that allow us to experience the amplitude of our own psychological experience and those that demand of us that we shackle our psyches absolutely to to yeah clock time to that marvelous website i was consulting yesterday time.gov that told me that my <laughs> mobile phone was 0.024 of a second out as against us government's official time i felt immediately out of sync with the whole world <laughs> and and if you think about it that you know the factory hooter the synchronization of watches the introduction of radio signals, cesium atomic clocks in the 1970s, and now, of course, what I call the bidirectional digital media, which mean that we are constantly communicated and aware through nudges, clicks, buzzes, talk about Havana syndrome, uh, of <laughs> our connection with a world-girdling imposition of the zeitgeist of absolute temporality, I would argue is absolutely the meat of our current traumatogenic environment. Yeah. And speaking of this false sense of objectivity that comes with something or collectivism that comes with clock time, you also note the false objectivity that certain technologies present, like photography. Why do you feel that we haven't moved on from this notion? Because we're at this point now where not only do we have a forced perspective, we have images that aren't necessarily 
ontological, that there is no referent there, and yet we take them as fact. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I, I think that, that, that Susan Sontag absolutely nailed this in her magisterial essay on regarding the pain of others, where she says, look, a photograph is an epistemic conundrum. In terms of how it represents facticity, it's a problem for us. On the one hand, it seems absolutely objective. A machine did the recording. No human. It's not a human eye and hand. So how can it be arbitrary? It just tells us what is. But on the other hand, even if a human's programming a machine, the time at which the shutter falls is predetermined by a human agency and the framing of the shot as well. And her great example, to my mind, is when she says, well, actually, she's quoting Hannah Arendt. She says, Arendt says, you know, the, the photos of the concentration camps were errant in this sense. Most of the photographs that we have were taken at liberation. So the sight of the emaciated former inmates, the piles of corpses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, which we all associate with the minute you say the word concentration camp, were not true of either the extermination or the concentration camps when they were actually in operation, when the killing was handled, as Arendt puts it, expeditiously and out of sight. So, you know, that's our problem. But collectively, with the rise of specular technologies, mirroring technologies, dioramas, then photographs, then then moving photographs, film, and then, of course, the ubiquity of specular technologies in our own contemporary era. I mean, even in my adult lifetime, we've gone, I mean, it often stuns me how the, I think I've lived in my adult lifetime through an exactly comparable period of technological innovation to that, say, between 1860 and 1920. It seems to me the same kind of, and yet I think we register it far less than they did in the late 19th century culturally. And it seems to me that our anxiety about whether we're going to have another Holocaust, about you know what kind of traumas are coming down the pipeline next, is a function, again, of us relaxing into the technological bubble afforded us by these specular technologies. They seem to contain us in that way. And, and yes, we give in to them epistemically. We think it must be real. Of course, hence all the anxiety about fake news. The anxiety about fake news is, is in a sense, unreal. There's always been fake news, and arguably all news is fake. The anxiety is really about the specular technologies and our refusal to recognize that they remain just as subjective as they were when Daguerre and Niepce took the first photographs in, in the 1820s and 30s. Right. I mean, when you talk about a daguerreotype, those were not simply just a record of someone, you know, a face, what have you. It was also a memento mori, because when you would look at the image printed on this, you know, like a mirror, you would see your own face and you would see the still image. You know, obviously back then there was a lot of death photography where after someone had died, you get a you get a daguerreotype of them. And so that type of, let's say, reminder is 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 largely absent from contemporary uh, different types of video and image technology where it's just like, a, I mean, I think you said there's some trillion, some, how, I forget how many it trillion. Was estimated, I think it's 2015, 15, or 2012-15 trillion images were taken. Yes, 15 trillion images. And that, you know, images are not simply, they lose their meaning because they're, it's so easy to take one, but they also are ubiquitous. But we still take them, as you say, as, you know, Correct. Well, I mean, uh, yes and no. I mean, I think, you know, the first, the people who witnessed the first photographs, and I take your point about, I mean, one, I, I can't remember whether it's Walter Benjamin or, or Sontag who, who makes the point that actually the first daguerreotypes and photos, you know, had a greater effective intensity in some ways because the sitters had to hold themselves still for so long to get a clear image. So the sense of concentration and kind of mutual communication between sitter and photographer was in a way greater than portraitists who'd been working in the contemporary period, you know, who needed to render a likeness. 
but a point that Wolfgang Schivelbusch, the great theoretician of the industrialization of time and space in the 19th century makes, is that, you know, the viewers of the first photographs saw a peculiar frisson attached to quite ordinary objects. Yes, they were taken by these memento mori. Yes, they were taken by the likeness of themselves. But they would also look at a silver-backed brush or or a, a glass with absolute awe. And what strikes me is that we still retain that kind of frisson in relation to the photographic image. And I can't help but feel that the frisson is produced by two things. One, our awareness of how our modern anthropic lifestyles are so divorced from the non-human world. You know, Marx says uh, men can see nothing around them but what they have made themselves. And and that's never been truer than in our own Zoomy era, has it? You know, we, we find it so difficult to get beyond that that I, I think we, we regard these objects even today, you know, even if you take a pocket photo with your mobile phone camera, you still kind of look at it and think, oh, really, that's what the inside of my pocket looks like. And I also link this, I think, to our anxiety. You know, we feel that with this technology, and as I say, we suspend our disbelief in its epistemic instability. We want it to reveal the truth. How can you not believe it? There's a photo of the mushroom cloud. There's a photo of the Enola Gay. You can't deny that, that the atomic bomb was dropped on Hiroshima. There's the evidence. Ah, oh, yes, but it could have been fake, could have been taken from a different angle, et cetera, et cetera. So the repression of that means that we, we feel the frisson because we feel what we've lost in a way, which is our sensuous and immediate engagement with the world. Because, you know, like Guy Debord, the situationist theorist, put it, the world has become nothing but a massive assemblage of spectacles. Right. And I mean, this sort of leads to the most conceptually difficult part of your argument and possibly the part with the highest moral stakes toward the end when you talk about how on TikTok, for instance, the narrative of trauma is more and more becoming the medium in which it's enacted. Could you walk us through that process, that transformation? Right. Well, I mean, it was actually something uh, the editor at Harper's, Chris Beer, drew my attention to was that this, mm. when we were working on this, the piece, this extraordinary culture on TikTok of these kind of counselors, self-appointed counselors who, yes. who are kind of reaching out through social media, obviously for their own you know, emotional and ego aggrandizement, to kind of essentially persuade people to engage with the discourse of trauma. You know, in a way, I don't have a problem with that. I mean, I th as I say, I think these environments are traumatogenic. The bad faith is, I think it's precisely social media like TikTok that is creating a traumatogenic charge or potential in so many people's lives. It's, it's thrusting people into technological bubbles that, that can all too easily burst. I mean, one thinks... With social media, we know what the bursting looks like in social media. The bursting on social media looks like, you know, teenage girls getting obsessed with a certain kind of body image, maybe even ending up having what I believe they now call tweakments, like Botox or something else like that, and then realizing that they've become victims of a kind of groupthink that has denatured them, removed them from their own physical embodiment in that way. So, you know, that, that kind of discourse, if you want to call it that on TikTok, is both, you know, it is the traumatogenic environment that it's attempting to diagnose itself, you know. So, and I, I, I know people are going to find this upsetting and they're not going to want to look at it because there's two big things in play here. One is, Technological progress does not equal moral progress, guys. It just doesn't. It does not, ever, and never will. There is no amount of new stuff, new ways, including new medical technology, that's going to make you a better person. That's just not possible. And by the same token, and I think this is an, an, another argument that we in the liberal West find very difficult to stomach, nor is technology value neutral in any meaningful sense at all. I mean, you know, the COP26 conference is going on at the minute. 
what we know in the background is it's precisely industrialization that's got us into the biggest pile of doo-doo any human society has ever seen. <laughs> so we cannot reach for the idea. So not only can we reach for the idea that technology is value neutral, nor can we reach anymore for the idea necessarily that technology has created a better world, namely the one we're living in. Right. And that's that's obviously a, a socialized response, you know, the idea that we are an inherent part of liberalism, that we're always progressing to something better, when in fact, I don't know, probably not at this point. Hard to maintain that argument. Well, I don't even think, you know, I, I think that, that, again, a problem for liberalism is, is that liberalism is not as atheistic or secular as it often likes to imagine itself to be. You know, it looks to me very like Judeo-Christian eschatology, liberal humanism, and it just figures human progress as divine progress. And, you, you know, I think I'm not necessarily a believer myself, but I certainly think the idea of a non-human agency that holds greater power than humans is a limiting constraint on those sort of pretensions. Absolutely. Speaking of sort of... Uh forms of belief, Christian and Jewish belief, is that you you argue that the application of trauma to literature and other arts that is devoid of a firm scientific understanding of the phenomenon, or just, you know, applying this kind of imprecise definition to things that are not people, who are, who are things that are not from, you know, a post-industrialized world is immoral. Yes, I, I, I think it's immoral, yeah. I do think it's immoral. And, and I think it's nonsensical. I mean, I, I was very gratified to read a, a, a marvelous paper by a, an associate professor at Wayne University, Anne Roth, who, who, and she called it irresponsible nonsense, the application of trauma theory in the humanities. And yes, immoral, and I, I would follow her thinking. And here's why. I mean, she figures it in the introduction of trauma theory into the humanities, the application of this idea of PTSD as an anthropological constant and using it as an interpretive device to unlock the literature of the past. She sees that as a byproduct of, of what we might call the crisis in signification that arises in literary studies in the really in the very birth of what we understand as 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 literary criticism in the 20th century when literary criticism as it were carves itself off from what used to be called philology when literary criticism comes under the sway of structuralist thinking following Saussure in in linguistics and starts to believe that meaning resides not in anything transcendental not in any value that can be transmitted from one period to another. I mean, here's the paradox. Not in an anthropological constant at all, but meaning is, in a sense, synchronic. Sign and signifier exist in a determined moment. You know, you say either, I say either. You say tomato, I say tomato. And indeed, let's call the whole thing off. You know, but instead of calling the whole thing off, there are university departments full of, you know, rather kind of learned people who've read an awful lot of books who don't like, first, the way structuralism forces meaning to be purely synchronic, and then the way Derrida's deconstruction, introduced into American literary studies by the, the somewhat troubling figure of Paul DeMann, who worked at Yale, where people like Kathy Carruth, the doyen uh, of trauma theory in the, in the humanities, also studied and did her doctorate, as did, I believe, Shoshana Fellman, another of the kind of eminent trauma theorists. The deconstructionist view of signification is that it, it is ever inchoate, meaning is only barely performative. It exists in the moment when we say something. So under these circumstances where, where meaning becomes so kind of muddied and, and, and unapprehensible, what happens? Well, one thing that begins to happen, people may argue is a very good thing, which is we no longer look to historical precedents as some form of transcendental signifier. And here you see the attack on the idea of the Western canon, whether it's from the idea of women having been disenfranchised from that discourse in the past, or people from uh, ethnic minorities, or and so on and so forth. So that kind of seems to play to the liberal agenda of the present. But more problematic, I argue, for academic literary critics is, why do you need them at all? 
because they can't say anything determinate. They can't say this is a good book or a bad book. I mean, I, I work in a university department where one of my colleagues told me in all seriousness, you seem to regard works of literature as artworks, Will. We here in the department, and this is an English literature department, regard them as sites of political inquiry. Okay, so, you know, at that point, you have to turn around and say, well, why are you a literary critic in that case, since you can't say anything? And I'm arguing in my essay that trauma becomes that transcendental signifier. It becomes we've all suffered. We've all suffered. And our way of understanding ourselves is oriented around this transcendental suffering. Hmm. That sounds like Christianity to me. Didn't that guy who was like really traumatized die on the cross for our sins? That sounds familiar. But to play devil's advocate for a second, do you think literary critics absolutely have to say anything definitive about works of literature? Like, isn't, isn't thought for the sake of thought worthwhile? And to be fair, you know, you're, when you're describing, you know, a lot of this, the trauma studies output, literary criticism output, that that most of this is like jargon filled, crappily written. But I mean, if you look at the sum total of writing, of fiction writing, you could also say that most of fiction is bad. It's not a good idea. Yeah. But <laughs> if I hear another white middle class professional working in a university tell me that their jargon-filled writing about texts from the past is a vital way of restoring social and economic equity in a highly divided society. Let's go back to that statistic on household wealth in African-American households as against white American households. I think I'll scream and tear their head off because it's <laughs> so clearly in bad faith. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you can play devil's advocate all you like. I have no opposition <laughs> to people thinking and, and creating the most elegant arabesques of thought and critical evaluation. What I violently object to is them telling me that's part of a, a liberal agenda. Yeah, I do. Yeah. Well, I would agree with that. Glad to stop playing devil's advocate for a second. <laughs> it sucks. But, I mean, speaking of devils, you write about the first wave of satanic panic. Mm. which began with recovered memory syndrome and multiple personality disorder. And right now, we're going through another satanic panic, which is QAnon. And even most recently, just a few days ago, the Travis Scott show, where there are tons of people trying to decode the symbols and freeze frames in footage from the concert to kind of make this argument that this was some sort of mass sacrifice. I mean, why? I mean, obviously... Conspiracy theories inevitably follow after traumatic or disasters of any kind. But why is the satanic panic coming back in such a strong way? Recurrent, involuntary, and intrusive, distressing memory, memories of the traumatic <laughs> events. We're, we're back to... I, I, I mean, it was, again, it was something that... that you know, in the process of working on the essay, it recurred to me, and partly, again, in conversations with Chris Beer, that I was reminded of the fact that I myself had written an extensive essay, an investigative piece during the SRA panic of the late 80s, early 1990s, that I myself had completely forgotten. So, I mean, I'm not saying I forgot the SRA panic, but I kind of did. After all, I'd worked on that piece for a couple of weeks. Here was I working on trauma and on the idea that we repress, crucially, that we repress memories of periods in which there's been an upsurge and a kind of obsession with these kinds of ideas. I, I clearly was a victim of this myself. And, and, and I think if we look at, as it were, the history of trauma in, in kind of hard terms, how it's been regarded by psychologists how it's been seen in relation to the human psyche. In that sense, setting to one side the more kind of humanities angle, then what we see is a recurrent pattern of a lot of work being done on trauma. And then at the collective level, it's a synecdoche. We see just as the individual represses the trauma, so does the collectivity repress the trauma. And in repressing the trauma, I think they lo we lose sight of what the trauma really was. So in the case of SRA, 
The real trauma was, as the head of child protection at, at the British charity most concerned with this, the National Society for the Protection of Children, told me at the time, the real trauma was that throughout the 1980s and into the 1990s, then the noughties, and even now, more and more perfectly old-fashioned evidence, you know, eyewitness testimony was disclosing the fact that organized pedophilia was far more widespread in Western liberal societies than we ever dared to imagine. You know, it really was incredibly extensive. I would argue we figured that, you know, partly through a collusive kind of foliadeur relationship with some of the victims as being some kind of satanic ritual panic. That signifier was enough to repress arguably what is a worse truth. I mean, if you don't believe in the devil, a few nutters occasionally performing black magic rites and doing awful things is one thing. But if you care to consider, and this is, you know, my partner's French, and she says, you know, when she's here in England, and, and there's a constant steady drumbeat of the revelation of institutional paedophilia in England, she says, what is it this week? It's it's in the army, it's in this hospital. It's in, in France, it's simple. They're all in the Catholic Church. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that's what we're trying to repress, right? Yeah, yeah. A distraction from the, the far simpler and less exciting truth of the matter. Okay, QAnon. QAnon is a conspiracy, you know, the, the, the phone masks are bound up in it. Telephones are bound up in it. Weird techno fantasies are bound up in this in this conspiracy theory. But what are we really repressing here? The conspiracy is in plain view. The people who use technology to conspire against us, I can't remember her, her name, but the woman who was blowing the whistle on Facebook, surely her evidence is exactly what we're trying to repress. Mm-hmm. particularly when we go on Facebook to organize our next <laughs> social get-together. Yeah. Well, what do I want to ask next? This is very fun talking about conspiracy, a great personal interest of mine. Well, you know, conspiracy <laughs> theory, I mean, it's slightly off topic, but I think it does bear on trauma. You know, why do we reach for conspiracies? We reach for conspiracies because we'd rather have any explanation for what's going on than none, you know? Right. And, and in a godless world, and in a world in which liberal humanist progress is starting to look really threadbare, we, we want something to explain to us. After all, it can't be our own moral turpitude, because remember, in every day and in every way, we're getting better and better. So there has to be some cabal of Satanists, lizard aliens, whatever it is that is, is secretly plotting to bring us down. But as I say, it's all in plain view. There is no conspiracy, or at any rate, the extent to which there's a conspiracy is easily identified. Right. Yeah, that's always the unfortunate part, right? That there's, if there was perhaps maybe a greater sense of class consciousness or the idea that, you know, what you were taught kind of fundamentally flawed and, you know, capitalism has its end date stamped on it. And that, of course, there's going to be this environmental destruction. And of course, there's going to be this mass unemployment and the monopolization of certain, I mean, Amazon. Amazon's like a independent film producer, in addition to supplying every sort of imaginable good you could imagine. There's no sense of discovery there. In, in looking through certain clues that are in pop culture, decoding it, that's, I, I feel like it's a form of vernacular creativity where you kind of get to tell your own story and you can comprehend the world through that story. The obvious detriment is that it, the energy people put into this could be much better put to use by either being actually creative, you know, like working on arts, or working to help their own communities. Right, but a more charitable view is, and I think you make a very interesting point, is that you know the advent of bi-directional digital media makes everybody a literary critic. You know, <laughs> makes everybody. It's like passing a text, looking for motifs and symbols, ulterior meanings. It's trying to equate the relationship between what's mediatized and and some, you know, b- between the signifier and the signified. Everybody's bound up in that now at some level. And of course, what you see in in the cultural realm 
is a widespread revolt of consumers, as they would see themselves, whether they're readers or viewers, against specialist critics. We already said, well, I don't need a critic anymore. You know, that whole idea, you know, I'm not, I don't need to buy Harper's and, and read what the book reviews in Harper's. I just need to go on Amazon and, and look. And, 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 you know, let's face it. The So that in itself is a populist culture, right? Because you're looking to an aggregation of value rather than anything else. But I think your point supplements that, which is at the same time, the individual at the end of the computer terminal looking at their monitor is starting to pass this symbolic world, looking for their own meanings in it in that way. Uh, and, and yeah, you know, say what you will about the past, but arguably whether it was class consciousness or different forms of ideology, whether it was Marxism or I might argue liberal humanism itself before its internal contradictions became too great to sustain it. You know, I, I, I mean, I'm not, as Patrick Deneen is, a, a Catholic, so I, I don't believe that. But I would accept his argument in, in why liberalism failed, that liberalism's failure is its success. I think that's absolutely right. It succeeded too well. And, of course, part of its success is the environmental crisis, you know, and I think under these circumstances, people quite rightly go looking for meaning elsewhere. They don't have a sense of meaning. And crucially, there isn't an integration, as you put it, between meaning and praxis. And that's where virtue signaling comes in. I really am going to sit at home put a black square on my social media feeds rather than than go out and talk to somebody from a different ethnic background, join with them in some concerted action in some way. You know, I think the trauma here is is liberal society's bad faith. You know, it, it really is. Everywhere you turn, you have another example of basically people wanting to pay to offset their moral debt, whether it's their carbon allowance or, if you like, their their allowance of actually doing something with anybody else constructive. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, and I mean, I think as somebody who participated in Black Lives Matter protests, marches during the first wave, and then to see the amount of people who, as soon as Trump was elected, came out that you'd never see at any other protest, you know, people protesting for the status quo, it was quite a, it was not like, I, I didn't find it joyful or like, yes, we're finally getting things together. I found it quite depressing. It's like, where were you? <laughs> where were you? We're all this one at every point leading up to this. And I think the other thing, and it sort of loops back into time is, you know, a rush and a push and the land is ours. You know, Kafka makes this point in the Zero Aphorisms, and I think I quote it in the piece, that, you know, for all movements that demand revolutionary change, there can be no past in an important sense because nothing has ever happened. And I think people find it difficult to view contemporary, you know, neoliberal economically but liberal, classically liberal, socially society as being a revolutionary movement. But it is. It is a revolutionary movement. And like all revolutionary movements, it demands such a ground zero. So when you, as somebody long-term committed to a culture and I'm, I'm sorry, you know, as you've probably realized, I'm a bit of a pessimist. I don't think any society <laughs> is ever going to be purged of all social prejudice. I think it's an un no. unrealistic aim in the first place. But when you, as somebody who had been engaged, and again, this is crucially, with, you know, your psychological apprehension of individual duration and your apprehension of incremental social change was completely assaulted and offended by these new people coming in who believed that it was ground zero. Suddenly, it was all going to be over. The new Jim Crow was going to be over. There was going to be, you know, intergenerational trauma among African-American people was going to be over, you know? I mean, yeah. yeah, of course you were upset. Why wouldn't you be? Well, we should probably wrap up, but I do have to ask one last question, which does have to do with revolution. So about four years ago, you gave a lecture on the death of film and you said you'd given it up like a few years before that, that you didn't watch new films. But I want to know if that's true <laughs> and if it is not true. 
did you watch the new Dune movie? Because I know it's such a huge, you know, Frank Herbert's books were such a huge influence on you. Yeah, I read Dune when I was 12. I mean, it's what an extraordinary thing. I'm 60 now. <laughs> this, <laughs> never has, has, has the future appeared so dated. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been weighing in the balance whether to go and see. Uh, I, I have some admiration for Villeneuve. I think he did a good, you know, here I'm showing my colors. I, I'm a sucker for sci-fi, as you probably realize, as a great critic of, of technology. I did see his Blade Runner 2047, and I thought it was interestingly dark. But, you know, it lent on Philip K. Dick and, and Ridley Scott's original perception. You know, the first Blade Runner is the first of those big sci-fi epics to accept the idea that the future could be dated. You know, it's the first one, looping right back to the beginning of our discussion, in which that edifice of liberal progressivism is chipped away at by an imagining of a future that continues to be technologically protean, but of course is morally nothing of the sort. So I thought that was interesting. I, I, I have returned to film, but I tell you, the films I mostly watch are silent. Mm. And I find, back to our conversation again, I find that silent cinema now, we're exactly 100 years from the golden decade of silent cinema, the 19, early 1920s, late teens and early 1920s. Murnau, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, uh, Sunrise, all of those movies, modern times, they're all made 90 to 100 years ago, yeah? And the frisson of looking for me, of looking at these films now is extraordinary. Uh, and the other thing is, while there is a degree of cross-cutting, early silent movies are not subject to, to what I call, to what you know, academics in, in film studies call the tyranny of film, which is the use of relentless cross-cutting where you cut between one moving object and another moving object, the assumption in the viewer's mind being that the two will meet up. And that's whether it's two social situations, two people moving towards each other, or a speeding car and a speeding train. It doesn't matter. Once you understand what cross-cutting is, and once you understand that the shot speed in most contemporary movies, I mean, on average, it has declined massively in the last 10 to 20 years. I mean, I, I think the figure is it's down from three seconds to 1.2 seconds, even in the last decade. All of this is to compel attention. It's to compel the viewer's attention. And it's in lockstep with the extent to which contemporary film and television is, of course, a massive exercise in commodity placement in, in the viewer's mind. So that's the filmic world I'm resiling from. Yeah, I, I will not be subject and I think, you know, anybody listening to this who's honest with themselves about an evening spent watching contemporary material that's on any of the big streaming sites like Netflix or Amazon, you get a kind of weird headache and nausea from having had your attention compelled to things that don't matter. Go back to early cinema where they have locked off shots for seconds, if not minutes at a time. Allow your eye to move into the visual space that's created there. It's the antithesis of our modern traumatogenic filmic environment. Well, that's very interesting. I think that's a very useful way to think about silent film, which I think typically not on a lot of streaming sites, unfortunately. They want to pretend like cinema started post-1960. But more to the point that there are ways to engage with these, you know, mechanical reproduction of reality that's less agitating and terrible. Right. But the basic problem is there's no getting away from it. Mm -hmm. And uh, there really is no getting away from it. And, you know, what we saw during the pandemic was, I think, thinkers like Naomi Klein, Rebecca Solnit picked up on this very early during the pandemic crisis and were right to flag it up. It was a massive kind of collective psychic land grab by the fan companies. They did really well off the back of it. You know, they've got us exactly where they want us, on the end of a, a computer terminal, locked into the tyranny of film in every respect, a, a, a tyranny that is that is interpenetrating the virtual and the actual. And what's the next thing that happens? Mark Zuckerberg launches Meta, the Metaverse. People Which looks laugh so at boring. him. Okay, yeah, but you know, may, may how old are you, may I ask you? Uh, I'm 36. Okay. You're too old. This isn't for you. <laughs> this is not for you, madam. I, I didn't laugh at Zuckerberg. 
Why would you laugh at, at, at a man who's presided over what he's presided Yeah, it's over? terrifying. I mean, what he's done is terrifying. Exactly. It's ter- we laugh out of fear because people say, oh, it's just like the silly old Sims. Nobody's going to – that technology doesn't exist yet. They don't have the most – it will. Mm-hmm. It will. Without the collapse of Western civilization as we know it, I think it's inexorable. Wow. We can leave it there, but I I hope you see Dune. I agree with the annoyance of how a lot of contemporary films, particularly action films, are constructed. And I think uh, it's really good. It's just so good. Okay, but 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 you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna see it twice, and the second time I see it, I'm gonna measure the shot speeds and the amount of cross cutting. You'll have a little stopwatch in the theater. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This was really a great talk. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. You've been listening to the Harper's Magazine podcast, produced by Violet Luca and Andrew Blevins. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. Harper's Magazine is the oldest general interest monthly in America, exploring the issues that drive our national conversation through long-form narrative journalism and essays. To get 12 issues for $21.97, visit harpers.org save 